Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 42. Today, we will be covering this little book. And um, I say little, not to be diminutive, but this little book, The Road to Serfdom by F.A. Hayek. And today we will be talking uh, about F.A. Hayek's Road to Serfdom with Libby Unger. Hi, Libby. How are you doing? Uh, I'm great. How are you, Hassan? <laughs> awesome. Terrific. So let's uh, let's jump into the book. Reading directly from The Road to Serfdom, the 50th anniversary edition, chapter three on individualism and collectivism. Before we can progress with our main problem, an obstacle has yet to be surmounted, a confusion largely responsible for the way in which we are drifting into things which nobody wants must be cleared up. This confusion concerns nothing less than the concept of socialism itself. It may mean, and is often used to describe merely the ideals of social justice, greater equality, and security, which are the ultimate aims of socialism, but it means also the particular method by which most socialists hope to attain these ends and by which many competent people regard as the only methods by which they can be fully and quickly attained. In this sense, socialism means the abolition of private enterprise, of private ownership, of the means of production, and the creation of a system of planned economy in which the entrepreneur working for profit is replaced by a central planning body. There are many people who call themselves socialists, although they care only about the first, who fervently believe in those ultimate aims of socialism, but care, but neither care nor understand how they can be achieved, and who are merely certain that they must be achieved, whatever the cost. But to nearly all those whom socialism is not merely a hope, but an object of practical politics, the characteristic methods of modern socialism are as essential as the ends themselves. Many people, on the other hand, who value the ultimate ends of socialism no less than the socialists refuse to support socialism because, the, because of the dangers to other values they see in the methods proposed by the socialists. The dispute about socialism has thus become largely a dispute about means and not about ends, although the question whether the different ends of socialism can be simultaneously achieved is also involved. This alone would be enough to create confusion. And the confusion has been further increased by the common practice of denying that those who repudiate the means value the ends, but this is not all. The situation is still more complicated by the fact that the same means, the economic planning, which is the prime instrument of socialist reform can be used for many other purposes. We must centrally direct economic activity if we want to make the distribution of income conform to current ideas of social justice. Planning therefore is wanted by all those who demand that production for use be substituted for production for profit. But such planning is no less indispensable if the distribution of incomes is to be regulated in a way which to us appears to be the opposite of just. Whether we should wish that more of the good things of this world should go to some racial elite, the Nordic men or the members of a party or an aristocracy, the methods which we shall have to employ are the same as those which could ensure an equalitarian distribution. It may perhaps seem unfair to use the term socialism to describe its methods rather than its aims, to use for a particular method a term which for many people stands for an ultimate ideal. It's probably preferable to describe the methods which can be used for a great variety of ends as collectivism and to regard socialism as a species of that genus. Yet, although to most socialists only one species of collectivism will represent true socialism, it must always be remembered that socialism is a species of collectivism and that therefore everything which is true of collectivism as such must also apply to socialism. 
Nearly all the points which are disputed between socialists and liberals concerning the concern the methods common to all forms of collectivism and not the particular ends for which socialists want to use them. And all the consequences with which we shall be concerned in this book follow from the methods of collectivism irrespective of the ends for which they are used. It must also not be forgotten that socialism is not only by far the most important species of collectivism or planning, but that it is socialism which has persuaded liberal-minded people to submit once more to that regimentation of economic life, which they had overthrown because in the words of Adam Smith, it puts government in a position where to support themselves, they are obliged to be oppressive and tyrannical. Why am I talking about this on the podcast today? <laughs> Isn't this just a leadership podcast? Hey, Son, didn't you always say that you don't get into politics? Hey, Son, did you say that politics was not a solution to our problems? Hey, Son, aren't you now a hypocrite? Well, I thank you for your feedback. And by the way, that'll be $8, to paraphrase from a current venture capitalist restructuring our social media town square. Look, the fact of the matter is that Frederick Hayek, an Austrian and German, a man born in 1899 who lived until 1992, was an individual whose ideas influenced thoughts on libertarianism and the modern economic space that we all live in. And they were in opposition to the ideas of individuals like Karl Marx, uh, like uh, Lenin, uh, the, the, the Russian, not the other guy, and many other folks who were dominant in the 20th century who genuinely believed, as Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt and even John F. Kennedy did, who genuinely believed in the collective power of individuals and of the state to overcome, well, individual action. Hayek's writing has influenced everyone. And while he wrote specifically in The Road to Serfdom in opposition uh, to Nazi Germany and the collectivist goals of fascism, we have wound up in the year of our Lord, 2022, in the exact same space again. We're talking about social justice and then talking about the economic ends of revolution have now merged together in strident calls to take from the haves to give to the have-nots. This man was mentored by Ludwig von Mises. And if you don't know who that is, you can go look him up. M-I-S-E-S. -E a very interesting fellow in him of himself. And while he thought his ideas were common sense, they were rejected in his time. And so it's probably time to raise those ideas again. Ideas of collective action, ideas of the individual, the tension between the public and the private the tyranny of small things. And it is worthwhile to talk to leaders about how we either get off the road to serfdom or how we avoid taking that road even in the first place. And I could think of no better person to talk with about this today than Libby Unger. Now, Libby is going to introduce herself, but I will say this. She gave me a great compliment. She said I was a, a heterodox thinker. And that's not exactly how I sort of think about myself. But I don't mind being thrown in with John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry and Shelby Steele and, well, all those guys over there. 
and some women too, Barry Weinstein and others. I, I don't mind being thrown in with that group of folks who are looking at the world and who are saying, again, at the beginning of this century, isn't there a better place to go with all the technological power that we have in our hand? And shouldn't leadership be guiding us in a different direction? So we're going to talk about the intersections between leadership, economics, and of course, political power with, as I said, my guest today, Libby Younger. Hello, Libby. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Hassan. It is wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, and thank you for that terrific uh, introduction with the background around the road to serfdom. Uh, by way of my background, the first half of my career, I started in investment banking and M&A finance. Um, second half of my career was um, focused on you know, creating value through business transformation, uh, turnarounds, and new business startup. You know, I've worked you know, uh, in Fortune, you know, leading Fortune 25 businesses as you know, and down to. You know, proof of concept startups, both as uh, an executive in-house and as a management consultant with the big four. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I love that mix is because it keeps me well-rounded and constantly challenging my perspective and point of view. Uh, I am a systems thinker. Uh, I would not have identified myself as such, you know, maybe more than 10 years ago, I didn't know what it meant. But, you know, essentially, you're able to kind of see the big picture and the, you know, and specifically, you focused on economics, business, and leadership, uh, and understanding how all of those play together uh, is one of the, it's one of the reasons why uh, we can, <laughs> I look at these past two years and can see you know, I'm a sense maker and a truth teller. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm all about jumping on board with big, audacious missions. I also am very cognizant of how to get there and the trade-offs that you have to make in a constrained resource world in which we want all to thrive on our way to get there. <laughs> how do we do it? And, um, you know, so... The thing that I come to this conversation with is I'm not an expert on the road to serfdom. Uh, I am not an expert on politics or government and never wanted to be. Um, that being said, uh, in reference to the VC that you noted, who's trying to bring freedom of speech back through the you know, the Twitter platform at $8 a month. <laughs> um, I do love humanity. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, I love humanity and I believe in humanity. Yeah. I, I consider myself a pragmatic optimist. Um, and I kind of left politics for the, you know, for those who like, you know, the game of rhetoric and policy. And I, I focused on business and how you create value for your customers um, and your ecosystem, your customers, your partners, and your employees, um, your investors, but always thinking of how do you balance the needs of all for the entire organization to grow. Um, and so 
the way that I came to the road of serfdom, you know, I likely read it in college and had no context for it at all. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was probably focused on World War II, pre, you know, what, you know, Germany, Europe, what was happening there. I got it on a, on a, um, on a historical basis, but understanding the applicability in my lifetime was far from anything that I could conceive or understand or appreciate. I really felt that the conditions around that book at that time, yeah, yeah, when I read it was relevant to that time. And we had moved on into an era of enlightenment (laughs) and basically we're moving up and to the right. Uh, If I'd read this book five years ago, I still probably would have felt the same way. Uh, I picked the book up um, figuratively speaking on a flight from the West coast to the East coast. And it was a free Kindle book. I was like, ah, the road to serfdom. Why don't I pick this up and just start reading it? I started reading. I was like, oh my gosh, this is where we are today. And the slippery slope that folks talk about from about when when we look at government and centralization, <laughs> you know, and each little um, scrape and dig that we take at at rights to provide safety and security uh, is um, a dig and a, a path forward to us all losing our freedoms, our freedom of self-expression, our our freedom of individual individualization, um, our freedom to grow. And uh, yeah, I read it quickly last year and I was like, oh, this all makes sense. But I didn't read it to understand <laughs> or teach. And when you and I met um, you know, a, a few weeks ago or a month ago, I just I felt that we had a strong foundation of common understanding of what the problems were mm-hmm. that we were seeing. And there was a common desire to understand it a little more deeply so that we could help provide solutions, um, big or small, to help put the country back on track. The world, I don't want to stop at the country, but yeah, I'll get big, the the world back on track. And so- we we got, we got to have big, we got to have big goals. I mean, you know- (laughs) Exactly. Well, you know, one of the things I say is, you know, can a podcast save Western civilization? Why not? Let's, let's, let's go ahead and see. I think they can actually, in the same way that Twitter can, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and honestly- it's the balance, what podcasts, what Twitter um, has enabled this past two years is actually for the decentralized, decentralized voice to counter the central, centralized voice. Right. I don't know what would have happened in a world <laughs> um, where we didn't have a counterbalance mm-hmm. to the centralized voice. And uh, I'll, 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 I'll give this back to you um, after your one clear thought that I want to share with our, our listeners and you mm-hmm. is that um, you know, the socialist socialism in Hayek's world is about centralized mm-hmm. planning and um, nationalized manufacturing fascism is another word for saying, how does the government operate through big business and corporations 
to manage and control the population. You know, so the socialism versus fascism is not that broad of a difference. And what we've seen over the last two years was a consolidation of power and the ability of big business, (laughs) big government, um, et cetera, to try to control the populace. And we need to reverse that. Well, and that's the role in my mind. Um, That's the role of leadership, right? Um, Leadership sees these dichotomies, understands that there is a role for them or an individual to play in combating these uh, tensions or maybe and not resolving them at the very minimum, adding a voice to it and then actively does so. Um, You know, ahead of this podcast episode today, you know, I, I love the website and this is just a shout out to them. I love the website Arts and Letters Daily. I love that. Love that website run by the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, it was um, it was founded by, um, I believe it was uh, Dennis Dutton, um, who, who died, I think, a few years ago. And, um, you know, it's it's about this Wiz website's an, an aggregate of all the best thoughts that people are writing on the Internet about really heavy, really heavy things. Right. It's an aggregate. Yep. And I go there and I read articles and I click around and mostly, you know, it's the New York Review of Books or Baffler or, you know, the New Statesman or Mother Jones, you know, and, uh, and you, get a, you get an insight into what people on the political left are thinking, uh, usually from the center left going all the way to the all the way to the, 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 the Jacobin far, far left. Right. And these are people with a fundamentally different worldview. I mean, I read three articles today, opinion pieces, all of them, rather long. I mean, 2,500 words, you know, so I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm reading this because I'm trying to comprehend, right? I'm not doom scrolling. And this is not preparation, by the way, for this podcast. It was just something that yes. I you know, kind of just do, right? And um, what struck me was there's a whole series of assumptions that are buried inside of those inside of that worldview. Because in every single one of those articles, all three of them, there was a reference to um, climate change. That's that's one. Um, there was a reference to um, the incapacity of government systems, and I love it how you talk about being a systems thinker. The incapacity of government systems to solve larger human problems, um, and there was this lament about that. Um, and then the third lament, which gets to the collective action piece, which is what Hayek is talking about here in this very first section that we read, there was also a lament about a lack of ability for people to be interested in in, in collective action. And you look at those three things and you can toss out climate change and add in, you know, poverty or immigration or any of the other watchwords of our time, racism, sexism, whatever. And you get the sense that, and we're not a historic, a historic, a history podcast per se, but the books we read do come from someplace, right? Mm-hmm. And you get the sense that there is no new thing under the sun <laughs> from another right. older, much older book. And you also get the sense that um, that tension between the individual and the collective, Right is a tension between, um, between freedom and tyranny. You, you, you definitely get that sense. And, and the line for that, the line of that tension, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn would have said, runs through, it appears, every individual's human heart. Um, as a systems thinker, it's really hard to go to scale, right? From the individual up to the system and then from the system back down to the individual. Um, and that's what I try to do in some of my thinking. But I liked what you said there about systems thinking. I want to explore that just a little bit in, in sense-making and truth-telling. What truths do you think leaders need to take from Hayek about systems thinking and about how they need to change their brain? It's a really good question. Um, and I think it gets into the one concept around the ends justifies the means. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so it doesn't matter how we get there, just that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, versus it does matter how we get there. Um, and the way that I think about that is from an individual perspective. Um, Dan Pink has this concept that I loved around how to unleash intrinsic motivation. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of leaders think that they motivate, they motivate teams and individuals through the rah-rah mission, the hardness of it, um, you know, assigning pay to performance. Uh, and you can get a little rational commitment and some rational motivation, but it's not sustainable. You know, so right. the sustainable motivation comes from that intrinsic sense of um, motivation driven by mastery or growth. So are you learning? Um, do you have a sense of purpose and do you have autonomy? And I think that last piece is really important. It's autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And we all define those things differently. You know, so as leaders, you know, our job is to create conditions where all people can thrive, where all individuals can thrive, you know, so it's about understanding the diverse and unique needs of individuals. Um, you know, and so what we tend to do in high-performing organizations is you'll set high guardrails or large guardrails around, you know, what is our mission? You know, how are we going to get there through kind of strategic initiatives and the metrics for success? You know, and then you know, teams will organize and determine how they will, how they will get there until um, you get to the bottom unit and the individual. But our goal is to always have the decision-making delegated as far into an organization as possible mm-hmm. and the guardrails large enough where people feel like they have autonomy in determining how they work. They have um, the ability to learn and grow in pursuit of you know, delivering a new product, enhancing a new product, supporting a customer. Um, but it's this concept around, again, mastery, per- autonomy, and growth, uh, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And purpose does not have to be, I'm saving the world. Right. Yeah. For me, like my purpose has been the reason I love uh, business transformation is because when people have the right information, the right tools, um, and the right skills to do their work, they have a hop in the step and their spark in their eye. And, you know, I know (laughs) that that hop in the step and the spark in their eye and having the right tools and information to do their work actually delivers your great economic value to my customers, to my partners, to my employees and to my investors. But we're doing it, you know, in an engaged and purposeful way. So your purpose does not have to be a touchy feely I'm saving the world, but it could be, I want people when they're at work where they spend 80% of their time to have a hop in the step and the spark in their eye and to being work, working with team members in pursuit of a larger mission. You know, so yeah, yeah. the collect, the individual is about understanding that 
you know, the collective, you know, we've been in bureaucratic, you know, environments and companies, you know, Oracle comes to mind and I, maybe we need to bleep that out so I don't get in trouble, but <laughs> we all have okay. ideas of like defense companies and yeah. old school tech companies where bureaucracy and command and control are in place and they're dictating kind of how you work, lines of control and command and the free, you know, the freedom of expression, the freedom innovation isn't great in those organizations. Um, employee engagement is extremely high in those or, or organizations. Um, and so we don't, you know, who want, you know, maybe some people do want to be a part of those organizations and they have a place they can choose that. But we want to be able to create conditions for other companies where you innovate, you grow, and people are always have opportunities to learn and grow. Um, so I'll stop there. No, but- no, no. And that's, and that brings up, I mean, it brings up a number of points, um, by the way, that the, 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 one of the better ways to access uh, the, the idea that Libby's talking about here from Dan Pink is through his Ted talk that he did in 2009 um, around his, um, around his, uh, his research on the science of human motivation. And interestingly enough, in that Ted talk, um, he says, there is a difference between, or not a difference, a mismatch between what science knows and what business does. And so we, we have more information than ever before right now about what actually motivates people. And by the way, this is 2009. This was over 10 years ago now. We have more information in 10, even 10 years after Dan Pink um, about what motivates people psychologically. And yet you're correct. We still operate in bureaucratic, top-down um, you know, sort of 20th century modes of thinking. And we still expect people to lead in those modes of thinking. And yet everywhere around us from the great resignation, which may have been over oversold, who knows, mm-hmm. right? But from the great resignation to COVID-19, the knock-on effects from COVID, we have seen individuals pushing back and demanding more autonomy, demanding more mastery and demanding more purpose. Uh, we do a lot of work. I do a lot of work in advising startups. And, you know, we've, we've already talked about, you know, the start of winter that's going to be happening, you know, that's already started happening and will be continuing to be happening into 2023 and probably 2024. And um, the startups that are going to make it are the ones that have the fundamentals that are clear underneath them, sales, marketing, operations, how they manage their, their human, the human capital that they have, their talent. But then also they are the ones that are going to attach those solid fundamentals to an actual practical purpose. And that's what leadership does. Um, not pie in the sky purpose, not we're going to go save the world. It's okay to say that out loud, but it's also okay to say, Hey, we're going to save these people 50 bucks. <laughs> hey, we're <laughs> going to save the customer a terrible experience. It's okay to say that. Should a purpose be uplifting and enervating and, 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 and enlightening? Yes, absolutely. But there's also a dynamic here that also leaders struggle with in the modern era where the Steve Jobs mode of leadership um, still dominates so much leadership thinking. And that is the cult of personality, the cult of charisma. Mm-hmm. And our podcast exists to say there's something past charisma, there's purpose, um, but there's also something past even purpose. And that's what are you solidly doing at a practical and intentional level every day? And how are you showing up and doing that? And that's a gigantic challenge. And I think um, Hayek's contribution to this conversation in that little bit that I read there is understanding the dynamic between this collective piece and this individual piece and actually, here's a big one, choosing your terms correctly, which is huge. Um, another big part of this, I believe, um, is the rule of law. So we talked about the difference between the bureaucracies and the startups. Uh, we talked about the difference between the big and the small. 
Well, as things get bigger, organizations, teams, um, even households, uh, there has to be more control over the systems <laughs> that surround mm-hmm. them, uh, systems of money, systems of rules and regulations, policies and procedures. There has to be all this control, right? And uh, the person with a thumb on the scale is typically the one that makes the rules. And Hayek had a thought about that. So back to the road to serfdom, back to Frederick Hayek. From chapter six, planning and the rule of law. Nothing distinguishes more clearly conditions in a free country than those in a country under arbitrary government than the observation and the observance in the former of the great principles known as the rule of law. Stripped of all technicalities, this means that government in all its actions is bound by rules fixed and announced beforehand, rules which make it possible to foresee with fair certainty how the authority will use its coercive powers in given circumstances and to plan one's individual affairs on the basis of this knowledge. Although this ideal can never be perfectly achieved since legislators as well as those to whom the administration of the law is entrusted are fallible men, The essential point that the discretion left to the executive organs wielding coercive power should be reduced as much as possible is clear enough. While every law restricts individual freedom to some extent by altering the means which people may use um, in the pursuit of their aims, under the rule of law, the government is prevented from stultifying individual efforts by ad hoc action. Within the known rules of the game, the individual is free to pursue his personal ends and desires certain that the powers of government will not be used deliberately to frustrate his efforts. The distinction we have drawn before between the creation of a permanent framework of laws within which productive activity is guided by individual decisions and the direction of economic activity by central authority is thus really a particular case of the more general distinction between the rule of law and arbitrary government. Under the first, the government confines itself to fixing rules determining the conditions under which the available resources may be used leaving to the individual the decision for what ends they are to be used. I love that, by the way. That's huge. Under the second government directs the use of the means of production to particular ends. The first type of rules can be made in advance in the shape of formal rules, which do not aim at the wants and needs of particular people. They are intended to be merely instrumental in the pursuit of people's various individual ends, and they are ought to be intended for such long periods that it is impossible to know whether they will assist particular people more than others. They can almost be described as a kind of instrument of production, helping people to predict the behavior of those with whom they must collaborate, rather than as efforts for the satisfaction of particular needs. Economic planning of the collectivist kind necessarily involves the opposite of this. The planning authority cannot confine itself to providing opportunities for unknown people to make whatever use of them they like. By the way, pause there for just a moment. Lenin If you read um, an article he wrote in Pravda, and I believe it was 1915, uh, we covered it on the podcast here. Go back and visit it. I believe it's episode number 22. It's somewhere in the 20s. We talked about um, Lenin's uh, great article in Pravda, how to organize the competition (laughs) with a question mark at the end of it. And by competition, he meant other people who were on the other side of him ideologically back to the book, it cannot tie itself down in advance to general and formal rules which prevent arbitrariness. It must provide for the actual needs of people as they arise and then choose deliberately between them, picking winners and losers. It must constantly decide questions which cannot be answered by formal principles only, and in making these decisions, it must set up distinctions of merits between the needs of different people. When the government has to decide how many pigs are to be raised or how many buses are to be run, which coal mines are to operate or at what prices sold shoes are to be sold these decisions cannot be deduced from the formal principles or settled for long periods in advance 
They depend inevitably on the circumstances of the moment. And in making such decisions, it will always be necessary to balance one group against the other, the interests of various persons and groups. In the end, somebody's views will have to decide whose interests are more important. And these views must become part of the law of the land, a new distinction of rank, which the coercive apparatus of government imposes upon the people. A lot in there. Um, nobody in the modern era would say that government, no, I'm going to use an example. This is a little bit better way to approach this as you're thinking about this. Listeners, if you remember back a few years ago when Amazon, that big company that you just ordered a bunch of stuff from this holiday season, remember when they were looking for a new headquarters, right? Remember how they made states, or not made, but they solicited states and cities to put together bids to see which state or city would benefit from having a second or third headquarter for Amazon. And remember, Amazon took on all these bids from all these cities and states. Economic planners of the bureaucratic and central kind in these various state capitals fell over themselves to pitch their cities to Amazon. Now, there was a little kerfluffle because Amazon didn't go with the first one they picked. But the third one they picked, which was very quietly moved under the radar, was Amazon decided to put a headquarters in Virginia, right across the river from Washington, D.C. Now, the lawyer in me <laughs> says, we bono, who benefits from this? Why would you put a headquarters next to a city where technology and startup consciousness is not big. Why would you put it next to a place where bureaucratic consciousness is big? Someone's going to have to decide the rules of the game. That's what Hayek is saying here. And leaders know that the person who's closest to the person deciding the rules of the game gets the benefit from the rules. And sometimes even, as in the case of Amazon and by the way, if anyone from Amazon wants to come on and dispute this, I would be more than willing to have that conversation, but gets to decide, well, how much funding they're going to give to the person who's deciding the rules of the game. This creates a soft tyranny versus the hard tyranny of totalitarianism. This is the soft tyranny of culture. This is the soft tyranny of entertainment. This is the soft tyranny of the civil bureaucratic structure, you know, the fourth branch of government, at least in the United States and globally. This is a way for leaders to mitigate risk analysis because that's what business is about, mitigating risk. This also gets us into the box canyon of fairness versus favoritism, which was kind of brought home to me the other day. I used to always say, and I'm going to say it less and less, that Fairness is a trap. Somebody got a hold of me on that the other day, and they said, listen, that, that, sounds, that sounds negative. You, you might want to change that. Fairness is a box canyon. <laughs> well, I think that person is correct. And if you don't know what a box canyon is, that's the canyon that in the Old West, John Wayne would ride into. The villains would be maybe on the other side or maybe at the top of the canyon or maybe inside the canyon. But every time you rode into the box canyon, there was a chance you weren't going to ride out if you were the hero in the Old West. We like fairness for ourselves, which we really actually call favoritism, and we like justice for the other guy. We don't really want justice for ourselves. And so 
whom does the rule of law actually serve in a system where large bureaucratic organizations are putting their thumb on the scales and smaller organizations can't get to the scale and mid-sized organizations are just scrambling around. We saw a little bit of this with COVID and that creates a dynamic complexity for leaders. Libby, how can leaders avoid the box canyon or maybe navigate it better of fairness and favoritism? That, again, you just wow me with your, um, uh, with your insights and um, in, in speech here. Um, the Amazon's the Amazon headquarters debacle was extremely disappointing um, for a variety of reasons. But you know, um, I'll get to you know the fairness and um, fairness versus favoritism. Uh, it everything is through transparency and you know reasonable application of the rules. Yeah, so the example that I have here that was led me to believe that things are a lot more political, um, and the the ends justifies the means. You know, is just the way of our political elite. Was the example of yeah the COVID. Um, lockdowns in Southern California Mm -hmm. and the definition of an essential worker versus a non-essential worker and how arbitrary the lines were set and they seem to favor the big business uh, and the, the big businesses that had a direct line to the governors, the senators, the congressmen whose pockets they lined with donations and this isn't left or right both parties do it um and that you know when there's transparency and clearly delineated rules and factors people are more uh, able to accept you know why some decisions are made Mm -hmm. uh they can actually debate decisions in a meaningful way and and to argue for rules changes you know and and we do see places where the you know where argue arguing for rules changes does work mm-hmm. um but the example that comes to mind was you know how small businesses and you know there was a restaurant in LA that had a vast amount of uh, open air seating and the woman you know, was a sole proprietor and had spent thousands of dollars making it COVID compliant only to be shut down um, by the city with arbitrary rules. And right next door to her was uh, a Hollywood set that had craft <laughs> craft services, yep. you know, feeding, you know, feeding the, um, feeding the actors and producers and, you know, and everyone on the set, the conditions were the same from a practical perspective around what we were trying to avoid from a, you know, from COVID. Um, but you know, from a, a reasonable common sense perspective, why one, one group could 
eat outside and provide food and the other one couldn't, it was extremely arbitrary. Um, it also got into this collectivist versus individualist um, bent where, you know, I, I believe you should have the opportunity to be a part of a large organization if you want, or if you want to take the risks and build a business and provide for your family and, you know, and, um, and community through small businesses, you should be able to do that. Uh, there should be clear delineation of what essential workers were um, and how they were identified. And when it's arbitrary and it seems to be a common theme around who is, you know, uh, who benefits from the arbitrariness of the rules versus non, that's when, um, that's when the fairness and not fair uh, becomes very um, apparent. And when the rules aren't there to be challenged, there you could feel helpless, yeah. right? You can feel like everyone, everything is working against you. Yeah. Um, so from a business perspective, the way you handle that is through transparency. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have clear roles and responsibilities. You know, everyone's been in organizations where someone doesn't know what so-and-so's role is, you know, and doesn't know what the other person's role is. And they're constantly pitted against each other, trying to make themselves look better. And it becomes more of a game of politics than of results versus when we have clearly defined goal, you know, goals and roles, you know, in an organization, we know what we're trying to accomplish. You're not spending any time on so-and-so is not doing their job. You're spending time on doing your job because you know how you're going to be measured for success. Um, you know how you're working with your fellow team members and you know how you're contributing to the end state um, and goals of the business. So transparency, role clarity, mission clarity, all those kind of fun things um, help with creating a the conditions for merit and fairness. Mm -hmm. um, but you also, from a transparency perspective and clarity perspective, clarity of mission, clarity of mm -hmm. um, objectives, a balanced way of measuring things, and then your know, balance being your know, customer, partner, financial, employee, balanced metrics and that we all know how we contribute towards, and constant, frequent communication and engagement at all levels of the organization. Mm -hmm. You do startups, it's rapid iteration and design. You never, you know, you de-risk your bets. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you don't need, you, you don't need the command and control to, you know, to, to limit risk when you're actually doing iterative and responsive design. So you're constantly responding you know, to your internal or external stakeholders needs in a meaningful and um, systematic way. Most people don't No, So, so the, the, the two types of listeners that we have to this show, um, we have folks who are in business and industry, right? Um, small, medium, large size organizations. We also have individuals who are leading in communities, right? Community leaders, um, you know, think mayor, councilman, uh, school board, yes. you know, those kinds of folks, right? When you're talking about the merger of those two um, ideas, the thing that I tend to think of, and I begin to think more and more of this and Hayek really brought it home to me. And then by the way, I read this book. The first time I read this book, I was like 19. Um, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. It, it really did. Like it re, it was it was almost like a reconfirming of everything I'd already kind of suspected. Um, 
Um, and I thought, oh my gosh, like this person put into actual language uh, the things that I have suspected for for a time. And then going back and reading it now in my 40s, I go, you know, I'm, I'm blown away yet again. And so like, that's holy the, cow. Exactly. The, the timelessness of this. We're book. right there. Exactly. Um, yeah. But back when I was 19, I didn't feel like I had a, I mean, it, it was more ideological. It was more sort of heavy and reasonable. And now in, in, in my 40s, it's more uh, practical um, and it's more um, tangible, right? Um, you talk about, and I, I say all that to say this, you talk about how transparency, fairness, role clarity, you know, these things for, for leaders are how they get out of the box canyon, right? Um, somebody challenged me the other day and they said, you know, pay, pay transparency is going to be a really good thing. And I said, I'm not quite sure it will be because I don't think organizations are ready for pay transparency. It's not that they practically can't do it. I don't think leadership is ready for that level of transparency and the spillover effects that will come from one person being hired six months ago to do the exact same work that someone's been doing 10 for 10 years. And the person who's doing it 10 years has stagnated and has not grown, but their, their wages have increased. And yet the person who come in, coming in is doing better than them for six months, sitting right next to them, is not making what they're making. And there's going to be some real problems here. And I know some organizations have in the past um, have gone in the background and have adjusted people's wages and have had serious conversations about, you know, what people are owed and what experience is. But this is a milieu, this is a leftover of the, the, the industrial revolution processes of the 20th century. And this is why we're having a hard time wrapping our arms around this, because none of this happens at the speed of a tweet, <laughs> either in a community um, or in a business. And so um, when we talk about fairness, we very often want it to be fast and instant like that. There's a role that patience has to play in this. But when you say that, right. people go, well, you're just holding up the order, the old order. You just don't want there to be revolutionary change. Well, if there's revolutionary change. You're going to you're going to burn the whole thing down. Um, you see a little bit of this with ESG a little bit. You know, if you're going to do revolutionary change, you're going to burn the whole edifice down and then you'll have nothing. And there's never a, an alternative placed forth of what replaces the thing after you've burned it down. When we think about transparency, when we think about debate, when we think about role clarity, when we think about mission clarity, um, starting off, I like how you start off with that idea of who benefits and what is essential. What would you say would be at the top of that list? I think there's one piece in there that was implied but not stated. And when we get into the mission, you know, the mission is kind of our why, you know, the how is, you know, who are we serving and what is the problem that we're solving for? Um, understanding that and understanding how we're uniquely positioned to solve for that problem. You know, the metrics are about like, how do we measure success along the way to achieving um, solving that problem? Uh, and um, from an organizational perspective, one of the things that we need to fight uh, is the desire to continuously grow, not from a learning perspective, but from a status and ego and size perspective. So by keeping yourself focused on what is the problem that you're solving for, knowing what the in state looks like, knowing what those uh, 
milestones along the way will look like measuring rigorously and prioritizing rigorously to make sure that you're staying on track to achieve those goals. And when you shift the goals, you do it explicitly because you've learned something new or the environment has changed. So that um, <laughs> there's more in the mission and you know, and you know, the transparency factor, but the transparency spans the entire um, system. Yeah, so from understanding, you know, what our mission is, how we're going to get there, how are we measuring success along the way, when the environment changes, why are we shifting? Um, what, yeah, what is adjusting, acknowledging what we've learned and why that's changing, you know, you know, why things are changing, why our approach is changing, why we may, may, may be changing our metrics, why we may be stopping something. But there's a rigor that we need to take, which is focused on solve the problem, <laughs> continuously assess how you're doing in getting towards that problem along the way and rigorously prioritizing your resources towards solving that problem. That being said, one of the biggest challenges that we have towards transparency is right now we use transparency to be, you know, to kind of be the means for truth telling and or stating things how they are. And it's not about seeking to understand the entire environment that we're solving a problem for and or different people's perspectives. So one of the reasons collectivism or socialism doesn't work is because there's an assumption that everyone has the basic needs and that the solutions that we propose are, you know, that we can predict every situation that is going to be right for every individual. Um, and we actually haven't talked to people. We have uh, gross assumptions around what individuals, individuals' needs are. You know, in order for us to start to align, we need to first listen to each other with the mindset of seeking to understand what don't I know. So as a leader, you know, my job is to create conditions for people to thrive, but it's to unleash their potential. And I first need to understand who they are. I need to understand their history and why they view things the way they view things. I need to understand their dreams and why they have their dreams. And then I need to understand what their sources of motivation are. And you know, that can happen at you know, an organizational level, a team level, and an individual level. And that's where we really need to you know, just stop and pause and stop taking, you know, we think that we, because we've read something or we've heard something from a biased perspective that we understand the situation. And until you've actually dialogued in groups and one-on-one, -on -one, we won't be able to bridge this gap. We are not far divided from where we want, you know, the men, means just, yeah, you know, the ends justify the means. You know, I think those are just bad faith actors. There's 90% 90, 90 of us probably agree on, you know, the ends and, you know, the means. We just need to listen to each other and align so we can start to move in the same direction. I will say I have never um, talked to someone who was maybe politically opposite of me without being able to come to agreement about something. 
Exactly, I, I, right? Know, I never I never have. Um, I've never been able to talk to somebody who was culturally the opposite of me without coming to some yeah. sort of agreement about something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I am concerned greatly about people who are captured by ideology, um, yep. either to the right or to the political right or to the political left. Um, because when you're captured by ideology, um, I'm going to make a religious statement here. It's almost like you're Cain <laughs> in, in the yeah. book of Genesis, right? And, um, you know, just before Cain kills Abel, um, the spirit of God tells him, behold, sin crouches at the door and wants to have its way with you. And when people are ideologically captured, uh, that ideology is having its way with them. Um, am I saying that ideology is sinful? Well, it is the, the, the old school definition of sin is hamartia. The Greek word for sin is hamartia in the New Testament. It means missing the mark, like an archery. It's, a, it's an archery term from the Greek words. So from the Greek language. So, you know, just think about that. Um, is ideology missing the mark? And I think that it is. It is missing the mark fundamentally. It's, it's, it's being captured by this sense of ideological I don't know, success or triumphalism maybe is the idea. And this is why yeah. fundamentally, you know, I'm opposed. I don't, I don't, I know there have been a lot of talk about, you know, a one world government for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. Um, it's nothing new to our, to our, Klaus Schwab is not the new, is the new Bond villain, but <laughs> it's fine. Um, there'll be another, trust me, there'll be another one 10 minutes from now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I want to be very clear. I'm not being dismissive because the the decisions that the the Brussels makes then filter down to Sri Lanka, and now everybody's doing organic farming and no one's eating. The, 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 these have decisions have consequences, right? So we, we got to be very careful here, not to minimize, but also to realize that as things get larger and larger, to Libby's point, they collapse, right? They collapse in and of their own weight, and they just they're not sustainable. <laughs> using leftist term they're not sustainable over the long over the long haul even to quote unquote get something done um whatever that something may be can i just jump in quickly yeah go ahead jump on that yeah jump on that yeah because yeah the fairness piece in here uh you heard me focus on the rigorous prioritization Mm -hmm. and the fairness is let's focus on like the things that matter Mm-hmm. Right. Like what are the, you know, and not spend time on the things that aren't going to create value. Um, and, you know, <laughs> fairness, you know, to, you know, um, we can have broad parameters around what that means, but if we're not bought into where we're going, you know, some of this fairness, um, stuff to me is kind of noise because folks don't know where we're going and how we're going to get there and how they contribute. Um, well, I also think that's a fundamentally American thing. So, because we're not, whether we like it or not, and we're either a melting pot or a salad, depending upon your, your idea, yeah. but either way, nobody's from here. And so the challenge has always been on, on this third of the continent <laughs> With this, with the mm-hmm. with the government that we set up, and we did a whole series on the Constitution, right? Um, looking at the constitutional government that was set up, um, you know, we are a republic with a lot of yelling voices, and being a republic with a lot of yelling voices, there's going to be some knockdown dragouts. There's going to be some 
there's going to be some fist fights. There's, there's going to be, and by the way, right? the emotional fist fights, yeah. like some of these feelings are going to get hurt, right? right? Um, in order to take a position. Um, and I think that the, the challenge of the chaos that, that uh, presents for leaders, particularly, now I'm speaking to my community leaders, the challenge of the chaos that presents is how do you move events? How do you move uh, problems to their smallest possible level to be solved at the smallest possible level. Right, there, exactly. Right? Yeah. So, you yeah. know, <clears throat> uh, climate change Maybe. is one because everybody's got a thought about climate change because everybody's impacted by the earth's weather. Okay, cool. And yet that is not a problem that is going to be solved at the smallest possible level. It could be through through individual community-based. Absolutely, it could be. There, there are modes. Michael Schellenberger has talked about this. Bjorn Lomberg has talked about this. It's not the big things, it's the small things. And yet the seduction to power of pushing that up to the highest possible level in the hierarchy, and we're about to talk about why the worst get on top, tends to attract some of the worst leaders that you can possibly get. Well, the piece that's missing there too is the metrics, you know, is metrics that matter um, as well. Uh, and, you know, metrics that matter around affordability, resiliency, um, affordability of energy, resiliency, um, ability to meet future demand. You know, some of those metrics um, on the climate change side, you know, where we'll say that we can get through by restricting demand not by which will restrict growth, which will restrict overall life happiness. So if we want to have a thriving society, and Schellenberger does speak to this, um, is, you know, in a civilization where we're all engaged, we, that needs to be one of the metrics, right? That we're continuing to thrive and grow and have economic viability. And we can, you know, we have opportunities to create our own uh, economic, yeah, you know, we can create our own economic opportunities through business. Um, uh, you know, um, and then there's, you know, a level where, you know, the state maybe take care of us, but um, a thriving civilization and not a reduction and a reversal in advancements that we've made. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, that this is where the balance metrics matter and the balance metrics around timeline too. You know, so we need to be thinking about uh, the people that we're impacting the most through some of these changes are the poor, um, are those who uh, are the poor, are those who um, who are reliant on uh, public or on personal trans uh, transportation, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the people who are making the rules, you guess this is it. This is it. And this is one of the things that really pissed me off during the pandemic is the people who are making the rules weren't impacted by them. Um, and with climate change, the people who are making the rules are also not impacted and they're, you know, and they're not talking to the people who are going to be impacted or seemingly care about them. While they say they care about society, it doesn't feel like they do. 
Um, and if we really want, as leaders, I think it's really important to continue to, in a constructive way to try to bring truth to light <laughs> and bring positive solutions to the table, like having a portfolio of energy solutions like Schollenberger mm -hmm. is doing, mm -hmm. which will minimize the impact on our, those who can least um, afford the impact mm -hmm. and also allow us to thrive as a nation. Um, yeah. I, I, so many places I'd love to take this. I know we have so little time. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I'm trying to balance kind of the needs of like civic leaders with business leaders. Yeah. Um, you know, at the end of the day, don't get discouraged. We've seen these cycles before. You know, we're all more alike than we're dissimilar. You, the key to moving forward is one-on-one -on -one and community conversations, getting off of our digital platform, stop listening to the politicians, stop listening to media. None of them have us in their best interest. And when we start to talk, we realize that, we, as you said, that we can always find common ground and we can shift the direction our country and the world is going through local community action. All right, back to the book. Back to The Road to Serfdom by F.A. Hayek. Um, I have the one with the introduction written by Milton Friedman. This is the 50th anniversary edition. And I, I always do make a point to, um, to mention the edition. Um, and also mentioned the publisher. So uh, this edition was published by, by the University of Chicago Press. Um, and its dedication is to the socialists of all parties, which I think is, is very amusing. Um, published in, uh, first published in, um, in 1994 by the University of Chicago. And again, with an introduction by Milton Friedman. Um, and on the back, it has a great quote from one of my favorite economists, Thomas Sowell. So uh, yeah, a, a giant in economic thinking. Um, by the way, if you want to understand economics, go out and get his book, Basic Economics. It will actually really, really help you. Back to the book, back to this idea of why the worst get on top. Chapter 10 in Frederick Hayek's The Road to Serfdom. We now must examine a belief from which many who regard the advent of totalitarianism as an inevitable derive consolation and which seriously weakens the resistance of many others who would oppose it with all their might if they fully apprehended its nature. It is the belief that the most repellent features of the totalitarian regimes are due to the historical accidents that they were established by groups of blackguards and thugs. Surely, it is argued, if in Germany the creation of a totalitarian regime brought the strikers and the killingers, the lays and the hinds, the himmlers and the hydricks to power, this may prove the viciousness of the German character, but not that the rise of such people is a necessary consequence of a totalitarian system. Why should it not be possible that the same sort of system, if it be necessary to achieve important ends, be run by decent people for the good of the whole community? We must not deceive ourselves into believing that all good people must be Democrats or will necessarily wish to have a share in the government. Many, no doubt, would rather entrust it to somebody whom they think more competent. Although this might be unwise, there is nothing bad or dishonorable in approving a dictatorship of the good. Totalitarianism, we can already hear it argued, is a powerful system alike for good and evil, and the purpose for which 
um, it will be used depends entirely on the dictators. And those who think that it is not the system which we need to fear, but the danger that it might be run by bad men might even be tempted to forestall this danger by seeing that it is established um, in time by good men. No doubt an American or English fascist system would greatly differ from the Italian or German models. No doubt if the transition were effected without violence, you might expect to get a better type of leader. And if I had to live under a fascist system, I have no doubt that I would rather live under one run by Englishmen or Americans than under one run by anybody else. Yet all this does not mean that judged upon our present standards, our fascist system would in the end prove so very different or much less intolerable than its prototypes. There are strong reasons for believing that what to us appear the worst features of the existing totalitarian systems are not accidental byproducts, but phenomenon which totalitarianism is certain sooner or later to produce. Just as the democratic statesman who sets out to plan economic life will soon be confronted with the alternative of either assuming dictatorial powers or abandoning his plans, so the totalitarian dictator will soon have to choose between disregard of ordinary morals and failure. It is for this reason that the unscrupulous and the uninhibited are likely to be more successful in a society tending towards totalitarianism. Who does not see this has not yet grasped the full width of the gulf which separates totalitarianism from a liberal regime. The utter difference between the whole moral atmosphere under collectivism and the essentially individualistic Western civilization. The moral basis of collectivism has, of course, been much debated in the past, but what concerns us here is not its moral basis, but its moral results. The usual discussions of the ethical aspects of collectivism refer to the question of whether collectivism is demanded by existing moral convictions or what moral convictions would be required if collectivism is to produce to the hope for results. Our question, however, is what moral views will be produced by a collectivist organization of society or what views are likely to rule it. The interaction between morals and institutions may well have the effect that the ethics produced by collectivism will be altogether different from the moral ideas that led to the demand for collectivism. While we are likely to think that, since the desire for a collectivist system springs from high moral motives, such a system must be the breeding ground for the highest virtues, there is, in fact, no reason why any system should necessarily enhance those attitudes or serve the purpose for which it was designed. The ruling moral views will depend partly on the qualities that will lead individuals to success in a collectivist or totalitarian system and partly on the requirements of the totalitarian machinery. We just talked about trust and competency, rigor, role clarity, mission clarity. And all of these are great aspects of leadership character. And we struggle with this idea of character. We struggle to get our arms around it because character is malleable and character can sometimes be situational, or at least the decisions that are based off of character can sometimes be situational. And it is hard to define, particularly in a world 120 years after we killed God, you know, that guy Nietzsche. And we've talked about Nietzsche before on this podcast, seemingly endlessly because i'm fascinated by him because of how much how deeply his ideas infected the sub-basement of western conceptions of character and goodness and moral and ethical virtue when you cut off or remove god from the top of the hierarchy then to what do you have to attain 
And by the way, I'm not talking about the religious or Christian God. I, I don't want you to think about a little man or a big man in the sky with a gray beard, a la Michelangelo. I want you to think about the conception of something being higher than you and that you will serve that thing, as Bob Dylan infamously said, because you're going to serve somebody. That's just how it goes. In a totalitarian system, the man or woman who is operating inside of that system, who is a dictator, is serving that system because they're going to serve something. And the system itself has rules and regulations, has boundaries and barriers. It is a system just like any other. And that system will warp an individual's character. We saw this repeatedly in the 20th century. Revolutionary calls for revolutionary change from individuals as with as widely varying characters as Lenin all the way to Che Guevara, and yet they all wound up in the same clearing at the end of the path. In order to create a revolution and in order to be a totalitarian, you got to break some eggs. And I believe the Rousseauians said that about 150 years before. This leads to fraudulent leadership, by the way, because a leader is either going to lie or tell the truth. And if the system doesn't allow the leader to tell the truth, well, the leader will lie. And the leader will lie and will lie and will lie and will get to the top. And guess what? It will be built on a stack of lies, which will create emperor's new clothes and lead to more central planning, not less. But I can hear the calls about best intentions, my best intentions, my best intentions. Well, what about the ends, right? Libby, how can leaders avoid conflating best intentions with actual outcomes? How do they separate the two so they don't become totalitarians in their own lives? A great question. And I think it has to do with what you view your role is um, and the mission. Um, and um, you know, they, they say power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely. Lord Acton's quote opens up right? the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, it is easy to get caught up um, in the ego and the status as you rise to the, you know, as you rise to the top, you know, um, in the, your, your values and goals need to stay prominent. And the thing that I, that comes to mind in this will be a good way to segue back to Amazon is the decision for Bezos to choose New York and DC for the second and third headquarters were a clear instruction to me of his values. Um, I had interpreted that the Amazon HQ through the lens that I wear, which is uh, business is a way to create jobs and opportunities you know, the individuals. Um, it's a, a place where people can thrive, you know, either part-time on their way to achieve their own goals 
Um, you know, like through McDonald's as, yeah, I was a cashier at McDonald's, you know, part-time, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I learned I didn't want to do that full-time, but it was a meat, you know, it was the means to the end, you know, um, I, and, you know, I, I, it was a means to an end and it played a very valuable role for myself and many teenagers and, you know, and others who, you know, who need to make, who need to pay bills as they're investing in their future, um, but the thing about the Amazon headquarters, as he was looking at Detroit, he was looking at, you know, I believe Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. lots of areas where you had room for economic redevelopment. There were incredibly smart people who lived in those regions, but the businesses and opportunities weren't there for them to make ends meet or to express their, um, their passions or to unleash their potential. And so it meant that in Detroit, you needed to leave or you needed to accept a little less for your life. I was really looking forward to like Bezos. I was like, Bezos, you have all the infrastructure for, with all the highways, you know, that were around, that are around Detroit. You have talent coming in from the local universities and schools. You have ex-engineers and folks who are underemployed who would be hungry for the opportunity to work for such a great organization. They, the, 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 energy and enthusiasm and passion that they would give you to help build your business while you're giving back to them, you know, jobs where they could fully express themselves and grow and create is just unmatched. I was wearing my lens from a values perspective around as a business leader, what one of your roles is. And when he chose New York and he chose DC that expressed the key wanted to meet, be near the power centers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that wasn't about labor arbitrage. <laughs> no. um, you know, no. it wasn't no. about it was helping not. to employ, you know, to match labor to opportunity. It was purely about what was going to be easiest for him to achieve and influence those who favored him and his businesses. That's why Amazon received, uh, you know, workers were essential workers. Yeah. You know, think about uh, you know, what's starting to be revealed right now through the transparency that Elon is providing mm-hmm. around how much coercion there was between the government and the social media platforms. Um, when, <laughs> when you're lobbying and paying politicians you know, for regulations that favor you, there's going to be a quid pro quo. Oh, and yeah. the, time, the first time you do it is going to be the first time to the next bigger, um, uh, the bigger sacrifice that you will make towards your values. And then the next time will be the bigger sa- next sacrifice that you make towards your values. If you do it once, that's the slippery slope to, yeah, to continued um, opportunity. So um, I think one of the reasons many of us actually drop out of corporate and want to build our own businesses is because we see those sacrifices that people make around their values of excellence, their values towards the workforce and the leaders in most companies, not all have sacrificed for security and status. Yeah. How much is your, 
Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a concept. I mean, I ran across this idea when I was like maybe 16 or 17 years old, this concept of golden handcuffs or as George yeah. Clooney, you know, infamously told somebody he was firing it up in the air. How much did they pay you to let go of your dream? Yep. And, you know, I get it. Uh, you know, there's, there's bills to be paid and there's mortgages. There's obligations you make to other people in your life. Um, marriage, family, children, uh, property, all these kinds of things, right? Yep. Um, those things cost. And this is not the March of Dimes. Those things don't run on charity. I get it. And yet, what kind of people do we want to be? What sort of leaders do we want to be? Heck, what sort of followers do we want to be? You know, um, people go on and on about the nature of our political leaders, and, and, and this will happen again in a couple of years. Every couple of years it happens. People look around and they go, is this the best we can produce out of 300 million people? And I've, I've started to say to people, yes, this is the best. You want better? You got to start at home. You want a better Jeff Bezos? Well, you got to start with different lessons. When Jeff Bezos isn't 40, uh, it's too late then. Or 50, it's too late then. You got to start when Jeff Bezos is 10 or four or five. <laughs> you have to start with Jeff Bezos's parents. And, and, you know, again, decisions that were made, right? How far back does character go? When does character start? These are challenging questions for leaders that also challenge the growth at all costs mindset, right? Which is really interesting to me. Um, one last thought I have on this, uh, and, and I'll frame it as a question. Um, in, a, in any tyrannical system, any totalitarian system, you have amateurs and professionals. Um, as a leader, how do I recognize the difference between an amateur who's just sort of pecking at me and a professional who's going to lock me in a gulag. Like, how do I, metaphorically speaking, how do I, how do I, you know, <laughs> how do I tell Jersey someone who's going to cancel me versus someone that's just going to yell at me at like the, the lunchroom? Because Elon seems to have a really good idea of like who the professionals are versus who the, who the amateurs are. And there's a lot of amateurs jumping around him like Virginia Jackrabbits right now, but there's very few professionals and the professionals are the ones you got to watch out for. How do you tell the difference as a leader? How do you suss that out? Well, that is a really good question. Um, I I always go in with you know uh, an attitude of trust. You know, mm -hmm. I always go in with an attitude of you know um, I assume um, someone is good, and mm -hmm. most people are. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's. Uh, it's really easy to distinguish the folks who are in the, you know, who are in the seats and not in the arena. You mm -hmm. know, so most of what he's getting are the, you know, are just the folks who are in the seats, you know, yep. and it's really easy to distinguish that noise. Um, the gladiators and the, you know, the fellow gladiator <laughs> or tiger or lion that you need to fight. Um, that's a, that's a whole nother assessment. And I think that's one you need to build a community of like-minded folks um, behind you, you know, so that you like, we're seeing this in China right now with some of the protests. Um, the reason um, 
we have censorship and isolation and otherism is to keep us apart from the masses because the masses actually, again, 90% of us think Mm -hmm. more alike than differently and they don't want us to talk. Right. So the second that we start sharing and talking to each other, um, yeah, we'll we can align against the other gladiator who mm-hmm. is against our needs in the arena. But it is, you know, it's art and science. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's test and validate. You never know. Um, for sure. Uh, but I find that when you that most of us are well-intentioned. Most of us want what's best for everyone um, and will work towards a positive good. You know, the, the, the naysayers or the big gladiators, they're really more like, it's more puffery. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have as much substance behind them when you start to get the masses on the other side. Um, trying to think. I had something that I wanted to say about this. We're seeing, you know, so we're seeing it actually play out on Twitter quite well as there was just tons of noise, you know, from all the, you know, actors and politicians, mm-hmm. you know, basically all the virtue signalers, you know, dooming the world. And when you don't give them energy, it mm-hmm. goes away. Like they need the energy. They need the negative counterbalance when it's not there. When you don't give them energy, it's starting to dissipate. And um, he's not giving them energy. He's laughing at them. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) You know, he's not saying you're wrong. He's not trying to argue. He's just laughing at them and behaving like they're, you know, that they're water on Teflon. Um, You know, so you as leaders, one, you like, 20%. 20%. Yeah. I think that we say, in, you know, in business, I'm in a change management space, 20% of the folks are always going to be on board with you. 20% are always going to be, you know, um, naysayers and, you know, and not on board. And your job is to motivate the middle 60 mm-hmm. and the middle 60 will move. Um, yeah. They just need to understand why and how. So knowing who those 20, that 20% is, you just don't give them time or energy. There's no swaying them. It's around you know, providing a voice, a case for change, a path forward, um, a way for people to see what's in it for them um, in the way that matters for them. And that will get the 60% to, you know, to move and, and to follow you. People trust people who speak the truth. Um, you know, and what I mean by that is acknowledge you know, the elephants and the smelly mooses in the room. Um, don't just paint this picture of the world being glory, glorious or um, your enemy being evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, like actually provide some context and nuance and um, say what everyone knows to be true. And you'll bring people on board very, very quickly. Um, Speaking of which, back to the book, our last piece on Hayek. <laughs> You're so good at these segues. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Listen for the segue. Um, the end of truth, chapter 11. 
The most effective way of making everybody serve the single system of ends towards which the social plan is directed is to make everybody believe in those ends. To make a totalitarian system function efficiently, it is not enough that everybody should be forced to work for the same ends. It is essential that people should come to regard them as their own ends. Although the beliefs must be chosen for the people and imposed upon them, they must become their beliefs, a generally accepted creed which makes the individuals as far as possible act spontaneously in the way the planner wants. If the feeling of oppression in totalitarian countries is in general much less acute than most people in liberal countries imagine, this is because the totalitarian governments succeed to a high degree in making people think as they want them to. This is, of course, brought about by the various forms of propaganda. Its technique is now so familiar that we need to say little about it. The only point that needs to be stressed is that neither propaganda in and of itself nor the techniques employed are peculiar to totalitarianism and that what so completely changes its nature and in effect in a totalitarian state is that all propaganda serves the same goal, that all the instruments of the propaganda are coordinated to influence the individuals in the same direction and to produce the characteristic Gleichschaltung of all minds. As a result, the effects of propaganda in totalitarian countries is different, not only in magnitude, but in the kind of that propaganda made for different ends by independent and competing agencies. If all the sources of current information are effectively under one single control, it is no longer a question of merely persuading the people of this or that. The skillful propagandist then has the power to mold their minds in any direction he chooses, and even the most intelligent and independent people cannot entirely escape that influence if they are long isolated from all other sources of information. While in totalitarian states, the status of propaganda gives it a unique power over the minds of the people, the peculiar moral effects arise not from the technique, but from the object and scope of totalitarian propaganda. If it could be confined to indoctrinating the people with the whole system of values towards which the social effort is directed, propaganda would represent merely a particular manifestation of the characteristic features of collectivist morals, which we have already considered. If its object were merely to teach the people a definite and comprehensive moral code, the problem would be solely whether this moral code is good or bad. We have seen that the moral code of a totalitarian society is not likely to appeal to us, that even the striving for equality by means of a directed economy can result only in an officially enforced inequality. An authoritarian determination of the status of each individual in the new hierarchical order and that most of the humanitarian elements of our morals, the respect for human life, for the weak and for the individual, generally will disappear. However repellent this may be to most people, and though it involves a change in moral standards, it is not necessarily entirely anti-moral. Some features of such a system may even appeal to the sternest moralists of a conservative tint that seem to them preferable to the softer standards of a liberal society. The moral consequences of a totalitarian propaganda, which we now consider are, however, of even more profound kind, they are, the, they are destructive of all morals because they undermine one of the foundations of all morals, the sense of and the respect for truth. From the nature of its task, totalitarian propaganda cannot confine itself to values, to questions of opinion and moral convictions in which the individual will always uh, will conform more or less to the views ruling his community, but must extend to questions of fact where human intelligence is involved in a different way. This is so first because in order to induce people to accept the official values, these must be justified or shown to be connected with the values already held by the people which usually will involve assertions about causal connections between means and ends, and second, because the distinction between ends and means, between the goal aimed at and the measures taken to achieve it, is in fact never so clear-cut and definite as any general discussion of these problems is likely to suggest. And because, therefore, people must be brought to agree not only with the ultimate aims, but also with the views about the facts and possibilities on which the particular measures are based.
Old school Christianity had this idea called the apologetic. You don't really hear too much about this anymore. Uh, matter of fact, in most people's heads, when they hear the term apologetic, they think of apologizing, um, which they tend to associate with shame or blame or negativity. But an apologetic is not that. An apologetic is a justification. It's a defense of something that would seem to be logical and need not defend ding, but it does need defending. That's why Christianity has had apologists, uh, gosh, going back to Augustine, who we also read on the podcast. That sort of sets up an idea here, because what Hayek is doing is he's creating an apologetic for the truth. He's saying that truth may be crushed by culture, but as my grandma might have said back in the day, she was still alive, truth crushed to earth will always rise again. Truth is kind of like one of those laws of nature. You can deny it. You can put your fingers in your ear and say, la, 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 la. You can even cover your eyes and see no evil and hear no evil and speak no evil. But eventually the truth is going to will out. It always does. Hayek is doing a root cause analysis of the erosion of truth in totalitarian cultures, but it is also a root cause analysis of the erosion of truth in our own time. Uh, Stephen Colbert and John Stewart, I lay this fully at their feet, created the modern culture of truthy truth, right? Truth that could be parodied, truth that could be mocked and lambasted and laughed at because it wasn't really truth, it was propaganda, but here's what they didn't understand. The more meta you get and the less seriously you take it, because humor is used to defang things, the more powerful sometimes it actually becomes. Hmm. We live in a time when truth, language, and fundamental reality for us as leaders are on the ropes. And I wish I didn't have to point this out, but when I have to do an apologetic for free speech on this podcast, you know fundamental reality is on the ropes. And maybe this is just a dynamic first world problem. Maybe this is what happens when you're post-capitalist, as the anti-capitalists say now. Maybe this is the clearing at the end of the path that you wind up at after all of your material needs have been met and you have only spiritual and emotional mountains to climb. Maybe other places, capital T truth and fundamental reality is still on the table. It's still on the buffet. But we're not leading in those spaces and we're not leading in those cultures. We're leading in this one. And this makes it really hard. So Libby, as we turn the corner here, how can leadership serve truth in an age that seems to be defined by the end of truth? How do we get there from here? Yeah, Hassan, the the themes throughout this um, continued, you know, continue to resonate, but transparency and courage. Um, are both two that are extremely important. We haven't talked about courage, but let's talk about courage. I mean, that's, courage that's one of the big. That's one of the big three in our in our leadership in our leadership products. We have yeah. a we have a design. You know, we call it. Uh, we 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 call it the three C's. I can't get it out of my mouth. Three C's of communication um, yeah. for leaders. You know, clarity, candor, and courage. Uh, those are the three C's, and you know. 
you can't get to courage without having clarity first. And you can't get to courage without going through candor, which means you have to talk about truth. And then you get to courage. So no, let's, let's, you're right. We haven't talked about courage. Let's talk yeah. about courage. Awesome. Um, so courage, you know, in this context is about being the voice that you know, yeah, being the one who's willing to say the emperor wears no clothes, mm-hmm. right? Um, when <laughs> and doing it as an adult, you know, not the child who doesn't know better, um, but have the willingness to say what others see but are scared to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the reasons these past two years, we weren't seeing, you know, the protests in Europe and the protests in Australia and elsewhere. We were only seeing what was happening in the U.S. Uh, through, you know, and that's from a mainstream media and political perspective. But if you're watching elsewhere, you, know, you have BLM riots all across the entire world. It wasn't a U.S. phenomena, but mm-hmm. we focused on it in the US, you know, the COVID um, protests, they were happening all around the world. And the reason that we weren't being shown them is because we might be inspired by knowing we are not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so courage is, the, is, the, is being willing to be the first person to say something. Um, and being willing to risk your status in your community for what you know is right to say. Um, earlier, we were talking about how um, one of the reasons people may stay in their jobs or not question things is because you know, from a, they need their job for money. They've made commitments. You know, the golden handcuffs. Adam Carolla has said. Yeah. And I love him because he said, you know, I could always quit because I knew I had other opportunities. Mm-hmm. So he never had to make um, those types of trade-offs around questioning, you know, his work, questioning his worth, because he knew that he was smart enough to figure out opportunities on the other side. Um, uh, and so he, you know, he, he had his non-negotiables. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's important for everyone to always be thinking, no matter what position they're in, what are your three different options? Make sure that you're always building skills to stay relevant in the marketplace that are needed elsewhere. So you have the ability to walk away from situations that are not aligned with your, um, with your, uh, with your value systems. But in the world of truth, you need to be willing to uh, sacrifice everything for what you believe to be right. And um, that is scary. We are conditioned as humans to be you know, tribal for safety, per, you know, for safety reasons. But truth is what will, yeah, was what will set the mm-hmm. <laughs> truth is what will set you free. Um, and truth always rises. So you know, the reason you and I, you know, you and I are having this podcast together is because 
you know, we introduced concepts to each other to see what each other's appetites were to discuss. And we saw that there was someone who was willing to banter and discuss some things that we were seeing. Yep. Um, yep. We're not alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so have the courage to say what you see. Also, um, I'm not, you know, I, I don't live in a world of shoulds and I must follow, I, you know, or that I know it all. Uh, in fact, the first thing, whenever I'm faced with a new situation or meeting someone new or as a leader, a big problem to solve, my first question is, what don't I know? Yeah. Like, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And what can I learn from others? You know, um, what can I learn from others? And how do we, what can they learn from me? And how do we, you know, make the world a better place with the, you know, with our combined knowledge? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I think that, um, well, I think that leadership can solve um, most any crises and problem, um, even the most existentially damning ones. And, and I believe it takes, individuals, uh, fundamentally the hobbits. This is how I've been framing it this year for folks. It takes the hobbits standing up and, and deciding that this is just the line and this is it. And I think, I do think that I do believe that millions of people, um, have now been awakened to that fact. Now what they're going to do with that, we shall see, but, um, sometimes that translates into political action. Sometimes that translates into cultural action, but, um, but I do think the tide is turning. I cautiously say that. Um, but I think it's turning in a direction where we may not have anticipated. And that always leads to that always leads to places of either revival or either further damnation. It just depends. <laughs> it depends on which direction you're gonna go in. But um, but leaders have a responsibility to lead from the front on this one. Um, words matter, and what words you're going to say matters what you will be compelled to say and what you will not be compelled to say matters. Um, from there, all there, all else falls, you know, all, all, all else comes. And so, uh, you know, saying that the emperor has no clothes, sometimes me saying that the emperor doesn't even know how to say they have no clothes because they're not even using the right words to fundamentally frame reality. And I'm a, I'm a speaker and a talker. This is a podcast we got to get the right words. We have to do that in order to fundamentally understand reality. Yes, go ahead. We also, it's the balance of um, emotion and reason, you know, and we have over indexed on emotionally driven decision-making and we need to get back to rational decision-making. You brought up candor. And so I think of Kim Scott and radical candor. Yes. Um, and radical candor is about caring and wanting someone to be successful. Yeah. Telling them honestly what you're doing well, but also if you want to grow, if you want to contribute, these are the things that you need to focus on and doing it from a place of you know, honesty, but also wanting you know, tough love. Mm-hmm. Um, wanting someone to thrive. Yeah, I can look, I look at the West Coast, San Francisco, LA, Portland, Seattle. Those cities are a sign of ruinous empathy. When you don't want to offend, when you tell people they're great, you don't want them to feel shame. Um, you're, you're trying to protect themselves from feeling what they already feel. Right. 
right? Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, you're correct. It's not yep. helping them. How do you create a path and options for them to see that there is a path forward for them to live esteemed lives? Um, and, you know, and having those honest, honest debate, radical candor that comes from a place of wanting the best for humanity and knowing that <laughs> the ruinous empathy is leaves no room for growth. Um, uh, We got to be honest and the path forward is tough, but nothing worth (laughs) worth having is easy to accomplish. You know, (laughs) why do, you know, why, you know, why do some people, um, uh, you love, you know, the self-made individual, like, you know, Elon Musk, why do others condemn him and love the lottery work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The lottery winner. Mm-hmm. Some people are jealous and ashamed of not wanting to work that hard. Yeah. So they condemn someone who does, who has more than they do. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, yeah. But anyway, well, it's courage and candor is just two of it. Yeah. And love, like, honestly, it's love, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I want people to thrive. I don't want people to live in shame, mm-hmm. um, but they have to move through it. You know, like you have to acknowledge what they're feeling and why, what did they get? Yeah. Why are they, what were the root causes that got them to the place that they're at? Um, what kind of self-understanding do they need? How can we help them out of it? Um well, there's a very old concept, um, and we want we don't have time to talk about it today. But there is a very old concept around forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, Martin Buber, the, the theologian, wrote about it many years ago, and um, it's um, it's a concept that is wrapped in beginning with forgiving yourself, mm-hmm. reconciling yourself. And then working in concentric circles outward. And that doesn't mean forgiving yourself in a sense that you're able to give your own self-transcended forgiveness. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is moving along the path away from shame, um, away from, I love it how you put that, ruinous empathy, and moving towards a space of, well, uh, the Jungians would call it a full self-actualization. So with the Abraham Maslow types, but I don't think there could be full self-actualization. I think there can only be the journey towards there. And it's a process, not a goal. Leading in collective environments, avoiding or navigating the fairness box canyon, behaving with humility in the face of hierarchy and seeing through propaganda in order to, well, in order to really talk truly about fundamental reality. These are four beats. These are four sections. These are four things you can pick up from F.A. Hayek's famous classic now, which was panned in his time, The Road to Serfdom. I encourage you to go out and get a copy of it because, quite frankly, in times like these, having the right words in the right order um, to understand what is happening in our world today as a leader is going to be critical to your leadership development. I want to thank Libby for coming on the podcast today. It was a great conversation. I think we 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 began to dig inside of the mine of this book and we pulled out some nuggets, but there's so much more in there for people to go and get. Um, Libby, where can people find you? How can people connect with you? 
if they want M&A work done, if they want consulting done, how can they get a hold of you? What's the best place to go ahead and get connected with you? Find me on LinkedIn at Libby Unger, U-N-G-E-R, uh, or email me directly at Libby at LuminoLA.com. And I'm sure you'll put that in the podcast notes. Um, but I would, yeah, my, most of my, um, my work is done word of mouth <laughs> and yeah, I'd love to connect. Uh, this has been super fabulous. Hey, son, um, the exploration into collectivism versus individual, yeah, individualism. Um, and I think the most important piece here is to just recognize how the systems play with each other and play you and to not get caught up in the game and the theater and to just start reaching out to your fellow humans and connecting. And we will have all of the places where you can connect with Libby in the, <laughs> in the show notes, as Libby mentioned, below the podcast player of your choice, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Once again, I'd like to thank Libby Unger for coming on the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast. And with that, that's it for me. Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to podcasts on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and even Spotify. And please leave a five-star review if you like the show. We need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way to make sure that this show gets into the ears of the leaders who need to hear it. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started on the leadership path, HSCT Publishing's products and services can help your team do that. Check out our training webinars, coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. We also have a video-based subscription service, that's software as a service, that can help your team become better at the individual level. 60 modules on over 100 hours of video and written content for you at leadingkeys.com. That's leadingkeys.com. We've also got books that will help you and your team grow. Pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss, and subscribe to the Little Red podcast I launched earlier this year with the same name as that Little Red book. My most recent book is 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, co-written with contributions from Bradley Madigan. This is the book for right now that was written for leaders right now. Pick up a copy by heading over to 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. That's 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. You pay for shipping, and you'll get a copy of my second book as well. Finally, you can get all these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place online you order books. Finally, HSCT Publishing is on YouTube. Like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing and hit the subscribe button. You'll get our weekly video updates, which is the video version of this podcast. And, of course, you're going to want to subscribe to my other podcast, 
That's right, I do do more than one. The Hayson Sorrells Presents audio experience, where I talk more casually with a broader range of people about all matters that matter in the world today, from arts all the way to analytics. All right, that's it for me.